Hello, friend. I'm so excited that you've decided to join us for our expository series on the book of James. I think you'll find this book to be challenging, inspiring, encouraging, and intensely interesting as you grow your walk with our Master and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us at Arlington United. As we begin our expository series on the book of James, just a word about exposition and how it differs from topical preaching or other teaching. In exposition, we take a text from the Holy Bible and we basically go through it line by line, word by word, and just allow the text to speak for itself. And the advantage of this expository method is that it places the focus squarely on the Word of God rather than on the speaker. You know, topical preaching is wonderful and it can be used mightily of God. But if we're not careful, we can sometimes focus on the delivery. And there's a great difference between a TED Talk and a message from God. Uh, that can come through in topical preaching. It could certainly be a message directly from the Lord, from His Word. But in expository preaching or expository teaching, such as we're doing here, the focus is squarely on the Word of God, front and center. And I enjoy this type of exploration of His Word because I think it places the premacy on the text that the Holy Spirit would have us to do. So with that, let's dive into James. Um, just a few words about the book and its place in the New Testament canon and its place in church history. First of all, the author of the book of James. Who is this James? Well, there are five people uh, in the New Testament that we know of as James. Uh, three of them are not real uh, possibilities in terms of the probability of who it was. Um, James just identifies as a servant of Jesus Christ in the, in the text. And so we have to take contextual clues from the rest of the New Testament and church history to give us some, some ideas. Now, number one, um, there's a James who was a father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but one of the 12 that Jesus chose. This is mentioned in Luke 6 and 16. We have no information about this man other than he was a father of one of these disciples. And so we don't think that he was the writer of this text. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, and he apparently uh, was a brother to Matthew, who's also called Levi. You'll find him in uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 15, Acts 1 and 13. And this James, we don't hear any more about. Um, he probably is not the author. The third James is called James the Little. Um, <laughs> it sounds like he might have been a short person. Uh, Mark 15 uh, and 40. Also Matthew 27 and, and 56 and John 19. 25. We don't know anything else about this James. And so again, he's not likely to have been the author of this letter because just by identifying by his first name and saying that he's a servant of the Lord, it's clear that the author of this, of this book, this letter, he expected to be known in the Christian community and for his, um, just his name to carry weight and respect uh, as would be expected in addressing them. And so Clearly, these three names that we have mentioned probably don't qualify there. So that leaves us really with two choices. One is James, who's the brother of John. Both of these were disciples, and they were, you know, Peter, James, and John. James and John were the um, sons of Zebedee. Um, and when we consider whether that disciple wrote this book, it's unlikely. First of all, James, who's the brother of John, 
was martyred in AD 44. And uh, this book appears to be written later than that. And there are some contextual clues around that. Um, it looks to be that the, the writer of this book most likely was, uh, was James, the brother of Jesus. Um, it's intensely interesting to me um, that James, the brother of Jesus, would write this book for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, James, the brother of Jesus, um, is obviously his half-brother because they were both sons of Mary, yet uh, Jesus obviously was engendered by the Holy Spirit, and so he did not have a biologic human father, whereas presumably this James, half-brother of Jesus, biologic father was Joseph. They were raised in the same household. Um, he obviously knew Jesus very well, and yet Jesus' brothers and sisters did not accept his message. There are multiple texts within the New Testament corpus that give us an indication that they sort of wanted him to stop his ministry and not going about uh, doing these things and claiming the miraculous and claiming to be the incarnation of God, the, the Son of God. And so um, it's just so interesting that that um, is, is the background. And despite this unbelief that James had, the Bible teaches us that Jesus made a personal appearance. Jesus made a personal appearance to James, his brother, after his resurrection. And we find this information in Paul's writings in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. After that personal appearance, apparently it was incredibly powerful for James, the brother of Jesus, and he realized that Jesus' teachings actually were true. He quickly converted and he became a leader in the premier church of the New Testament era, and that was the Jerusalem church, which is sort of where the apostles that were part of the initial 12 uh, were located and where they established their ministries and church administration and church leadership. James became what Paul called a pillar um, of, the, of the church um, with, with uh, Peter and with John. We find this information in Galatians 1.19 and 2.9, where Paul calls him a pillar of the New Testament church. And in Acts chapter 15, um, and the, the date of this meeting in Jerusalem is probably around AD 49, we find that this Jewish-Gentile controversy that had arisen, whether um, Gentile Christians should obey the Mosaic law or not, this was really threatening to, to split the New Testament church. And so there was an apostolic conference where the elders of the church of Jerusalem, uh, the 12 apostles that had been appointed by Jesus and other Christian leaders, apostles such as James, which had not been appointed by Jesus, but um, were leaders within the New Testament church, met to discuss this issue. They had a debate, um, they had a discussion. But at the end of this, it was James who laid down the rules for how fellowship would move forward. Um, the Entry into the covenant of the New Testament would be what Peter had laid out in Acts chapter 2. Repentance, baptism in water in the name of Jesus, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit is evidenced by speaking in other languages or other tongues. Um, and the Gentiles would not be required to follow the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. They would uh, continue to follow the moral law, what James later called the, the royal law. And it's interesting, this pronouncement of the letter that came from this conference in Acts 15, because it begins with a Greek word, kyrion, or greetings. And this is the exact same word that's used when James begins his letter. 
uh, greetings to the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And he's referring to the Jewish Christians that are scattered throughout what was known as the diaspora or the, the scattering of Jewish people outside of the Levant or the, the, the area of the Middle East uh, directly um, to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, so what we see is that James was a prominent leader in the New Testament church. Um, he wrote his letter probably um, in the, the, the mid to late 40s, so about 15 years after Jesus' ascension. Probably AD 48 is a good date for the letter because there's no mention of the Jewish-Gentile controversy at this time, uh, and that probably indicates that it had not yet risen uh, to the point that it got to in Acts chapter 15. With respect to uh, the style of the letter and how it came to us, um, it was quoted um, in the second century by Christian leaders as being part of the canon or the accepted group of books that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is consistent with the rest of Scripture. It points to Jesus as the author of salvation. And so its tone, its moral quality, its agreement with Scripture's the rest of the scriptures is, is certainly qualifies it as, as a book that can be trusted as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we look to it for wisdom. And that's exactly what James is. The, the, the letter that James leaves us is some authors have called it sort of the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, it seems to be not necessarily thematically constructed as an expositional argument for a particular theological point like Romans or even the Gospel of John, uh, but it seems to be sort of a pastiche or collection of wisdom sayings. And this is very similar to what Jewish sermons were like um, in Second Temple Judaism, the time from, uh, from Zerubbabel and Nehemiah rebuilding the Jerusalem city and walls and, and temple until its destruction in AD 70. In this time, Jewish sermons were somewhat one author has called it, they were deliberately disconnected. In other words, um, they seem to just take different pieces of life and wisdom and put them together, very similar to what you see in the book of Proverbs. Um, and this is kind of how James is constructed. He sort of skips from theme to theme uh, and gives us life lessons that we can learn for how it is to live as Christians. Now that we've entered this new covenant, this new reality, what does that mean for us? You see segments of James where the Sermon on the Mount is very closely followed. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is very similar to these ancient Jewish sermons. And the Greek of the book of James is actually a very well-written and well-constructed Greek. Uh, the words that are there are, are quite, um, I want to say, I don't want to say academic or high in tone, but uh, the, the quality of the writing in terms of the sentence construction grammar um, is is somewhat elevated compared to the rest of the New Testament. And it would be very unusual for James, the brother of Jesus, who was from Nazareth and was um, uh, a, a Jewish raised person, to know Greek uh, in the rural provinces of, 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 of the area around Judea and Galilee. And so this has been a problem for uh, textual analysts for some time to try to think about how did this rural, uh, Hebraic educated person know this Greek that was there. And probably the answer to this puzzle lies that it was exactly what we stated, a sermon by James, that one of his disciples, perhaps a Hellenistic Jew, someone who was trained in Greek uh, and lived outside Jerusalem, had come back to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, the three festivals of the year that uh, Jews who were 
scattered abroad, but come back to Jerusalem for. He heard the sermon, was very moved by it, and put it down on parchment for us, and that's how we have it preserved. And that's probably how the sermon that James preached reaches us as the letter or epistle of the book of James. So with that introduction, let's dive in and let's see what James has to say. Um, he's, he's steeped in Jewish tradition. We have over 20 references to the Old Testament in just five chapters. It's a, it's a, a very um, fascinating book because it offers a bridge between the Hebraic understanding of God and the new covenant that we have in Christ and how do we live in reality of what Christ has done and is doing in us. So James begins and uh, he has such a wonderful introduction. He says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that he uses here um, is doulos. It means a lowly slave assigned with menial tasks. This is actually the word that Paul uses for uh, ministry and being a minister. And this points us to a paradox of Christian leadership. Jesus had told his followers, he said, listen, um, my authority is, is, is not like the authority of the world, the Greco-Roman society that you see around you. Um, they lord it over their people and they have mastery over them in terms of a, what we in, in our culture would call a hierarchical system of power. But what Jesus said is, if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. And he not only said that, he did that. Recall that on the last night that he spent with his 12 leaders he had chosen, that he took a servant's towel, a doulos towel, and a doulos basin, a doulos uh, uh, collection of water. And he did the lowliest task in the household, which he washed the feet of his disciples. Peter didn't want him to do that because he said, I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you basically got no part of me. Because what he was explaining is there's this inversion of power structure within uh, Christianity. Those who are great in the kingdom of God are those who serve others. And so from the very beginning, James identifies with that and says, I'm a doulos. I am a lowly slave. I, you know, he could have claimed, Hey, I'm James, the brother of Jesus. You've got to listen to me. Hey, I'm James. I'm, I'm by now a pillar in the new Testament church. This is the most influential church in the entire Mediterranean basin or in Asia minor. And you need to hear what I have to say. I've, I'm really going to be profound here and you you sit up and pay attention. That's not what James starts with. He says, listen, I'm a servant. I'm a, I'm a slave to Jesus. He's my master. And I want to share some things with you that I have learned. And then he says uh, to the 12 dispersed tribes, again, this is to the, the Jewish Christians. He says something really strange. He says, you should count it all joy when tests come your way. And that's somewhat difficult for me. You know, I, I, I can think in terms of stoicism or, or being uh, uh, resilient or, you know, when, when, when tests and trials come, uh, I, I just prefer good times. I prefer things that are easy. I prefer uh, when there's money enough to pay all the bills. I prefer that when health and energy are there. I prefer when peace and harmony are, are, are reigning and there's no controversy, and no conflict. But James said, you can have joy when you're in testing. Uh, and he gives the reason for that. But let's talk for just a moment about that word joy. Joy is different than happiness. Happiness is circumstantially dependent. However, joy is ontologically dependent or soteriologically dependent. What does that mean? Well, joy comes from our relationship with God. And he is the ground of being. He is the bedrock 
that we can base our experience on. Um, if we have salvation in him, then we can always have joy. Remember, joy is a portion of the fruit of the spirit. And if we have been imbued with the, with the, the, the spirit of God, then we can enjoy that joy, if you'll pardon the poem, at any time and in any circumstance. Jesus said to his disciples, don't rejoice circumstantially. Don't rejoice because you have a victory over evil spiritual forces, but rather rejoice because your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so James says, you can have joy even when times are difficult. And he says, the reason that we can have this joy is because as we have tests and as we have uh, temptations, that brings to us patience. The, the trying of your faith produces patience. Now, it's interesting. This word for patience is not just uh, what we have in our language is sort of this passive acceptance of what is going on or just waiting and sort of um, just, you know, sitting there and, and, and waiting for something to change. But rather this word that he uses for patience is an active verb that has to do with being trained or turning something into um, uh, a good outcome. Uh, and so we understand, we understand that the trying of our faith, this word that James uses is called periasmos. It means testing like a bird tests its wings. We are testing our faith. It's not that God is is uh, just trying to put us through these things just for his own entertainment, or he's bringing something good out of us, and it is testing and showing our faith. And again, that word for patience, hyponymy, it, it's sort of, it's the idea of unswerving constancy. It is, it is not being swayed by what is around us, but being informed and settled by what is within us. That gets back to how we really live our lives, not just as an emotion of faith, but in a deep reality of trust in God. And he said, you know, while you're in these trials, if you need wisdom, just ask of God, ask of God. And he gives liberally to all men. This is in verse five. If you need wisdom for these trials, ask of God and he'll give it to you. He said he doesn't uh, upbraid is the King James version. It's the idea of giving, expecting something in return or giving and then holding something over your head. Oh, you remember that time when I loaned you my screwdriver in 1973? That's not the way that God gives like sometimes we give as humans. He gives to us liberally and he doesn't hold it over our heads. And so James has an unconditional promise. If you ask for wisdom, you can receive it from God. Now, this wisdom is not the wisdom of intellect. It is the wisdom of the spirit. And later on in his book, you'll find eight characteristics of this divine wisdom. It's found in James 3.17. We'll get to it in a further episode as we go through this exposition. So when we're in trials, we can still have joy. We can still have peace. That peace is not the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of God. That joy is not just an emotion of happiness that rises and falls with circumstance. It is the deep reality of salvation and of intimate relationship with God that tells us as long as he's on the throne, things will work out in the end. And if it's not good now, it's not the end. Because as Paul said, God is working all things together 
for our good, as he said in Romans chapter 8. Finally, James says, when you're asking of God, don't just ask with wavering faith. Now, this doesn't mean that that if we have doubts that we have wavering faith. That's not what James is talking about because he says the person who's wavering is not a person who's going to receive something from God. Um, and we know from Mark chapter 9, there was a man who came to Jesus and Jesus said, you believe? And he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He freely admitted that he had faith and he had doubt. One uh, theologian, Paul Tillich, said, if you have no doubts, it means that you're not taking your faith seriously enough. We as humans, we struggle sometimes intellectually with hanging on to the, the, the mental certitude, if you will, of what God is doing in our lives and, and his progress in us and, and how he applies his sovereignty to our circumstance. But please, friend, take reassurance today. If you struggle with doubt, have faith in God and God will count that faith for righteousness in you because he healed the son of that man in Mark 9 who said, I have some unbelief, help my unbelief, because he did have faith in Jesus. If you're standing in front of the right person and that person is Jesus, then you can be assured that your faith is safely placed and he will respond to it. James says, don't ask with wavering faith. And what that means is we need to have an unswerving loyalty to God. It's not so much about faith as an intellectual assent, but it's more about faithfulness as a choice of the will that we have cast our lot permanently with Jesus Christ and we are permanently loyal to him. The companion piece for this text in James, don't have swerving loyalty. Don't be tossed about like a wave of the sea. Don't go back and forth. The companion piece to this is when Jesus said, no person can serve two masters. You have to choose one or the other. And I would urge you today, friend, let's just choose Jesus. Despite the tests and trials that come our way, despite the vicissitudes of life and the things that happen and occur, despite the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of human existence in this fallen world where we as fallen creatures are in the active process of being redeemed by the new covenant existence in Christ Jesus. John said it this way, we are now the sons of God, but it doesn't yet appear what we shall be because we haven't seen him yet face to face. Stay in the covenant, stay in the truth, stay in the walk with Christ because the trials that you're currently undergoing are going to bring patience in you. It is a testing and a trial that will show that you are sterling silver. You are pure gold tried in the fire and you will find as you place your unswerving loyalty in Jesus that he's worthy of every confidence. He will take you through. Listen, if he can take a person who lived in his own house and didn't believe in him for 33 years and in one personal appearance with him, transform that man, his own half brother into a pillar of the church that wrote a book that we're talking about 2000 years later, friend, imagine what he could do in you. We're so happy that you have joined us today. And I want to thank you for joining us for this introduction. Wow, what a wonderful privilege to explore the Word of God together. What a, what a gracious gift of God to leave us His Word. It says that His Word is forever settled in heaven. No matter what's unsettled in your life today, Christian, 
you can trust that God's word is true. And he left it with us to encourage us. The book of James is a book of wisdom, but it's not just a dry book of rules for how to live life. It is a living document of the life of Christ that leaps off the page and into our hearts and reminds us that the Holy Spirit is still at work today. Just as he inspired James to write this book or to preach this sermon, just as Jesus appeared as the embodiment of that Holy Spirit to, to, to reconcile James to himself after the resurrection, so he's still appearing to us today in our lives through his written word, through his preached word, and through the work of his spirit to guide us into maturity within his covenant. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to sharing the rest of the book of James with you in further episodes. Thank you, friend, for being with us at Arlington United.